I realize that um, there are some here who may not know me. My name is Pascal, and my wife is Becky, and um, a few years ago, we left this church to go back to Mauritius, which is my home country, and that is where we've been serving since 2013, and um, Becky sends her greetings. Uh, we have very, very fond memories of, of y'all, and we think of you and, and pray for you. And uh, it was um, uh, an answer to our prayers when um, the Lord sent uh, Jeff to be the pastor here. I'm yet to meet him. I'm hoping that next week I might be able to, to meet with him. But um, I just wanted to pass along Becky's greetings and tell you all that you've been in our prayers. So, uh, Corey, can you go ahead and send that? Um, up there, that's a picture of my family for those of you who uh, do not know. So, on the left, that's my wife, Becky. And to Becky's left, um, uh, there's Liam, our oldest, and then Adrienne, the daughter, our daughter. Um, she's the baby. Uh, her name is Hava. And then on my lap, that's Ashlyn. Um, Ashlyn uh, is the one who had surgery four months after he was born, and uh, he's doing really well with his surgery. Um, he has recovered very well from, from that. Um, but I ask you to keep praying for him when we get back to Mauritius. We have to schedule a CAT scan for him, the surgeon. Uh, we saw him just two weeks before I left Mauritius to come back here, and the surgeon said that he wants to just make sure that everything is, is working the way, the way it should. So I would appreciate your prayers for him. The ministry is going very well in Mauritius. I'm still working in the church uh, where my dad pastors, the church that he started. And um, when my dad was here in the States a year ago, he had a heart attack. And so when he came back to Mauritius, he just asked me to um, just keep keep doing what I was doing during his absence. And so he has recovered fairly well from his heart attack, but uh, the heart attack caused his age to just catch up with him. So I still have a lot of the preaching responsibilities at church, uh, but he does a lot of the pastoral ministry. And um, these are, when you think of the ministry of, in Mauritius, I just want to mention a few things in in which you can always be praying for us. So I would ask you to pray for the pastors of the church. There's my dad in the middle, and uh, he's the main pastor, and I serve alongside him as one of the pastors. And then to my dad's right on the left of that picture, there's a, a man named Gilbert. He also serves on, uh, as a pastor of the church. Pray for my dad's um, health because he has slowed down some, but I will also ask you to pray for Gilbert, that uh, he has one of his daughters is severely autistic, and it's, it's a challenge for, for him and his family. The daughter is 13 years old now. She's very strong, and uh, they are having a hard time uh, dealing with, with her. So I would appreciate your prayers for, for him especially. And then these are two men in our church that uh, we feel have uh, the capacities to serve as elders in the church, and we would like to um, start giving them some, some more training. So we will do that 
uh, in-house. So my dad, Gilbert, and myself will try to uh, go through some courses with them to train them for the ministry. Uh, their names are Michelle on the left and Steve on the right. So pray for them. And they already serve quite a bit in the uh, local ministry. And our hope is that we will train them that if something will happen to the pastors of the church or if we are called to go elsewhere uh, in Mauritius, that these people are people that could step into the pastoral uh, role at the church. Also, I would ask you to pray for this young man. His name is Jeff Sergio. Uh, he graduated from high school at the beginning of the year, and he is now in the States in Bible College. He's studying for the ministry, and I would ask you to keep praying for him because I do realize that when you are in Bible College, it's easy to get distracted, to end up not focusing on the main things, but on peripheral things. So pray for him that the Lord will keep his heart, that he will be uh, have a passion for the Lord, and that um, at the end of his studies that he will come back to Mauritius to serve there. And then two more things uh, I would ask you to pray beside these things. I would ask you to pray for our church. We are presently um, looking for um, land that we could buy to, to build a, a building the place where we meet right now is uh, a house that we rent, and we are starting to outgrow it. If everybody's present and there's visitors in the church, uh, we, we just don't have a, a lot of room. So pray for us as we seek um, property that we can buy to build on. The government in Mauritius is not openly hostile against churches, but they are not very uh, encouraging either. They, they are not promoting the, the spread of churches. So it's our prayer that uh, we will try to do things the right way. We'll go through the right avenues, but pray that we will find favor in the eyes of those who will handle uh, all our paperwork and, and all that. And also keep praying that the religious freedom we have in Mauritius, that that will continue. And pray for our church that... Um, it will be faithful in, our, in its witness. And pray for our family. Uh, we ask prayer not for our welfare, first of all, but pray for our testimony that we will be faithful uh, representatives for Christ, that uh, we will stand firmly for the gospel, that we will not compromise, that we will be faithful in showing people that Christ and his kingdom are worthy of everything, that it's worth giving up all there is to give up because of Christ and his kingdom. So we sincerely appreciate your prayers for us and the relationship we have with this church has met a, a turn for us. So we appreciate your prayers for us. Pray for you while you're here, okay? Thank you. We take this time serious. It's been a while since our brother's been able to be with us. He sees some new faces, so uh, you recognize this uh, brother of ours when you look at our mission board. So take time and look at those mission boards and realize uh, they were in this pew. You folks who don't know him yet, they were in these same pews that you're in. So be careful what you pray for. God may send you somewhere, okay? You've, if you've been here any time, you'll see a number of people that have been in the same seat you are. 
Uh, and we all learn we can't stay where we are and go with God. Our seats are going to turn one way or another. We're just going to move. We're going to turn. Something's going to happen in our lives. So uh, we're glad to have our brother back with us, and we're going to lift these up uh, on behalf of him and what God's doing. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you, first of all, for the opportunity to have our brother home with us again. We do pray for his family as he's away from them, that your grace and your mercy will be upon them, that uh, you'll give them all the support they need, that you'll keep them safe and continue to use him and them as a very effective witness where you've called them to, Lord. Uh, we pray for the church there. Lord, we, we humbly acknowledge that you've allowed us to have a role in the growth in Mauritius and what you're doing there in that nation, through that nation. And we pray, Lord, that your church would thrive, that your church would bear much fruit, and that you would be glorified and your kingdom advanced. We pray for each one of these persons that were mentioned, the one that you're equipping in Bible college now, that you would protect and preserve his heart and teach him truth and establish him for future effective ministry. And for these potential elders that you're training and raising up, that you've called their hearts forward to, to lead in this way, that you would teach them the things they're going to need to know to teach the next ones. We pray for this um, pastor that has the autistic daughter, that you would give wisdom, good grace to that family and, and help them through this situation and, and use this daughter, use this whole family for your glory. And for Pascal's dad and his health, that you pour your grace upon him, that you'd help him to know how he can use the rest of his years wisely, effectively, strategically for your gospel. And pray for wisdom for this church as they consider the growth and the looking for land and opportunities there. Uh, open doors for them so they know your hand at work. And um, pray for the nation that you continue to give influence with leaders so that they can thrive uh, with the freedoms that they have, that they would at least be preserved at the same level, if not increased, and perhaps even gain influence through the, the gospel, getting into the hearts of the leaders there. Lord, we thank you again as a church to be able to be involved in what you're doing on the other side of the world like this, and thank you for the relationship you've given us. We pray to continue to strengthen it, and uh, would you help us to be extremely sensitive uh, to their needs? Uh, and let us know how we can love them more, love them better, and be the church you've designed and desire us to be. And as he shares your word today, would you give us clarity? Would you give us a conviction? Would you use it to do that which only you can do? And then use us to spread more gospel in this community and around this globe. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Chapter 21. Revelation 21. And I'll read verses 1 to 8. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned 
for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So when we come to this section of the book of Revelation, we get an apocalyptic description of the hope of the Christian. So this is what John is doing here. He's trying to get us to look at our hope. And the point of trying to get us as Christians to consider our hope is to encourage us to persevere. So history is moving towards what John describes here. This hope. History is moving towards that. This is what awaits the Christian after all of God's enemies have been judged. So whether they are spiritual enemies, whether they are physical enemies, all of these have been defeated. They have been judged by being cast in the lake of fire. And after all these things, this is what awaits the Christian. And when we read this, we need to remember this, that the point of describing this hope is to encourage the Christian to persevere through the hardships and difficulties of life. So John, in keeping with this purpose, shows us this glorious hope. And his point, his intent, is that when he describes this hope to us, that this will encourage us as Christians to hang on to Christ, to persevere in our confession of Christ as our Lord and Savior. So here in this text, we have two rough divisions, okay? First of all, in verse 1 to 4, we have a description of this glorious hope. And then in verse 5 to 8, there are three specific truths relating to this hope that the Christian should always remember, that he should never lose sight of. So first of all, let's consider the description of our glorious hope. So when we look at apocalyptic literature, there's a trend we see in the book of Revelation where there's a vision, and the vision is followed by an explanation. And this is what we have here. We have a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, followed by an explanation of what that vision represents. Okay, so in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So I'll ask a few questions 
rhetorically, and I'll try to answer them, okay? So, first of all, how should we understand the new heaven and the new earth? I think the way we need to understand that is that it's the newness is not temporal, but qualitative. What I mean by that is that when we consider the teaching of the Bible on this subject of a new creation, we realize that it's more appropriate for us to consider, to understand the new heaven as not something that is temporally new, but as something that is qualitatively new. In other words, we should not understand new as something that's different, but as something that's renewed. So when John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, I think the way we need to understand that is that it's, it's renewed. Okay, it's a bit like people who take an old beat-up car and then they restore it. And they restore it to such an extent that it's much better than what it was when it was first made. Okay, we see this happening all the time with some antiques, okay? And it's a bit like that. When we consider the new heaven and the new earth, it's not something that's totally new. What the Bible teaches us is that it's this same new earth that has been marred by sin, that has been marred by uh, uh, wrong stewardship of men, that same earth that God renews to an infinite qualitative superiority this time. And that is how we need to understand a new heaven and a new earth. So I want you to briefly turn with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. And... I read verses 18 to 25, but I want you to pay special attention to verse 21. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, he for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, there's a lot of things that could be said about this text. So I won't say everything, but I want to draw your attention to one thing. That Paul draws a parallel between the fate of the sons of God and the fate of creation. So... The parallel that Paul draws is that in the same way as men will be glorified, in the same way creation will be glorified. So when we think of our salvation, how one day in the presence of God we will obtain a glorified body. It's the same body that now God glorifies. We'll be able to recognize each other in heaven because of that. It's the same body that God glorifies. 
And in the same way, the parallel that Paul drives helps us to understand that this earth, this new creation will be the same creation that God glorifies. And he glorifies it to infinite qualitative superiority. So this is the biblical idea between the new heaven and the new earth. Not something that's temporally new, but a renewed creation. Something that is infinitely superior in its renewal. Second question I think this text leads us to is, what is meant by the phrase, the sea shall be no more? Okay? He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What does that mean? The sea shall be no more. Okay, literally, we could interpret this to mean that in the new creation, there will be no body of water. You know, what we know as the sea, that this will not exist in the new creation. But I think it is unlikely. First of all, it's unlikely because when we think of a renewed creation, God's old creation had the sea, and if God renews that creation, the sea will be there. But also I think it's unlikely because it does not fit with the biblical picture of a God who loves his creation and lovingly and sovereignly rules over it. God created the sea and what is in the sea for, its, for his glory. Okay? Psalms 104 verse 26, you can make note of that, says, There go the ships. Speaking of the sea, in the sea you have the ships and Leviathan, which you have formed to play in it. So God placed the animals, the fish, the whales, all the marine creatures in the sea. And whatever they do in there, that is for the glory of God. So to say that in the new creation there will be no sea, I think does not fit with this picture we have of God as a loving creator who lovingly and sovereignly rules over his creation. Okay? So what I suggest here is that we need to understand this phrase symbolically. So when the Bible says, in the new creation, the sea will be no more, he's not saying this literally, but it's symbolically that he's speaking. And in the scripture, typically, the sea symbolizes adversity to God's purpose and to God's people. So that's why when we read the scripture, we often see the scripture talking about God rebuking the sea. Okay? We see the sea as almost an enemy of God. So in Psalms 106 verse 9, he rebuked the sea. And it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So this is speaking of the Exodus, how God led his people through the sea and to the promised land. But the language that's used, okay, he doesn't say he opened the sea. The language that's used paints the sea as an enemy of God, that God rebukes the sea. Same thing in Isaiah 50 verse 2. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. There, there again, we see the same thing. Nahum chapter 1 verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. 
Bashan and Carmel with the bloom of Lebanon with us. And then we have the same thing in the New Testament where we see Jesus speaking harshly to the sea, speaking to the sea in a way that he would speak to evil spirits. Okay? So often in the scripture we have this idea of the sea as an enemy of God. And more importantly, I think, in the sea, in the book of Revelation, excuse me, the sea seems to be the origin of cosmic evil. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, to chapter 13, verse 1. Okay? In Revelation chapter 12, there's a, um, a summary of Christ's life, his birth, his life, and work. Okay? The summary just takes one sentence. Okay? Um, and how Christ's work has defeated the devil. Okay? So in verse 17, how does, how does Satan, how does the devil respond to the fact that Christ has defeated him. So in verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, okay, believers, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, So the devil goes to make war on believers. And what does the devil do? In verse, the last verse of... Um, Last part of chapter 12, and he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems and its horns, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. So the devil goes to make war with the people of God. And he goes on the sand. And from the sea, he calls out this arch enemy of the people of God. God. So when we look at the book of Revelation, the beast, the arch enemy of the people of God, originates from the sea. So when we now get to chapter 21, and John tells us there was no sea in the new creation. Symbolically, he could be referring to two things. First of all, that in the new creation, there will be no more persecution that will arise for the people of God. That's the first thing. Then the second thing that he is possibly referring to when he says that the sea will be no more is that evil itself will never be found again in the new creation in the same way that it originated in the new creation. In God's original creation, God created it and said, it is good. But then though that creation was good, Satan came into the garden and tempted men to sin. In a creation that was good, evil made its way in that creation. But John is giving us a promise here that in the new creation, that the sea will be no more. There will be no persecution for the people of God, but evil itself will never be found in the new creation the way that it was found in the first creation in Eden. So I think this is what John means here. When he says that the sea shall be no more. We need to interpret that in light of what he has said concerning the sea earlier in the book of Revelation. And then a last question I will ask 
is how are we to understand the new Jerusalem? Okay, he's talking about the new creation. The sea will be no more. And then, and then in verse 2, he said, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What I suggest here, and I think what the scripture teaches, is that the new Jerusalem is coextensive with the new creation. In other words, the new Jerusalem is not a city of the new creation, but, but that the new Jerusalem is another way of referring to the new creation. So, new Jerusalem is not a city, okay? Like Ringgold is a city of this world. No, new Jerusalem is just another way of referring to the new creation. So these are um, similar terms. Okay? And I think this point becomes fairly clear when we read chapter 22, Revelations 22, verse 14 to 15. Okay? So just the next chapter over. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, if you read this list here, okay, this is the list of people who are outside of the city. Okay, John says... Outside, so outside of the city. These are the people who are outside of the city. But then if we read this list and we compare this list to what he said in chapter 21, verse 8. Okay? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. So, when we compare this list, we get to this conclusion that to be outside of the city is to be in the lake of fire. To be outside of the city is to have no part in the new creation. So why then does John use this language of the new Jerusalem? If the new Jerusalem and the new creation refers to the same thing, why does John switch from the new creation to this term, the new Jerusalem? I think that it's because of emphasis. When he talks about new creation, the emphasis is on the glorified creation. But when he talks about the new Jerusalem, I think the emphasis is not on the creation itself, but on the covenant people of God who will dwell in the new creation. And I think then verse 2, the second part of it, to verse 4, points to this emphasis. Okay? If you read verse 2 to verse 4, you, you hear overtones of a covenantal language. So in verse 2, the second part. Okay? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself 
will be with them as their God. So we look at, at the language and we see covenantal language. Okay? The idea of um, the city being the bride of the Lamb. That's covenantal language. The reference to marriage re communicates a covenantal relationship. Marriage is not a contractual relationship. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. Now, when I speak of a covenant, uh, at times people have made this comparison that a covenant is like a contract. But I think there's something that is missing in that comparison. Okay, a contract um, is, is an agreement where the compulsion to, to obey the terms of the contract comes from the outside. In other words, if I don't abide by the terms of the contract, there are outside authorities that will approach me and fine me or take me to court and possibly take me to jail. Okay? That's a contract. The compulsion to obey the terms of the contract comes from the outside. In a, co in a covenant, the compulsion to abide by the terms of the contract comes from the inside. And so when God tells us that we are his covenant people, God is saying that there's something, he has taken an, an, an engagement um, that comes from within himself, that we will be his people. Okay, so that's the idea of the covenant. So we see the reference to a marriage points to that covenant, covenantal relationship. But then in verse 3, the language is very similar to the language of Exodus chapter 9, verse 5 to 6. Listen as I read. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And when we read verse 3, we see this idea of us being the covenant people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God enters into a relationship with his people. And God says, because I have decided, I have taken this upon myself, that I will dwell with you, that you will be my people. So when John uses this term, the New Jerusalem, he's reminding us that we are God's covenant people and that God has taken an engagement um, towards us that he will be our God, that he will walk with us in the troubled times of life, that he is at work in us to guide us to this hope, to this new creation. Okay? And then when we read verse 4, I think what we have verse 4 is just the blessings of the covenantal relationship in the new creation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are the blessings of being in that covenant relationship 
with the Lord. So when we suffer, let's remember that Revelations was written for people who are suffering, people who are going through intense persecution, people who are starting to struggle, are tempted to compromise instead of holding on to their confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. When we go through times like this, let us remember this truth. Let us remember what God has in store for us. So, we can summarize this description, description of our internal, eternal inheritance with these three statements. That our eternal inheritance will be life in a glorified creation. The new heaven and new earth. Secondly, our eternal inheritance will be free from enemy oppression and from the possibility of evil. No more see. Evil will never originate again in that new creation. And then, third, our eternal inheritance will be the consummation of our eternal covenantal relationship with God. What, what I mean by consummation is a lot of biblical truths have an inaugurated sense and a consummation sense. So we are awaiting its full um, fulfillment. So right now, we are God's people. We are that fully but we possess that truth in an inaugurated sense that is awaiting its consummation, okay? So a lot of biblical truths are like that. And in this eternal inheritance, we will see the fullness of what it means to be in an eternal covenant relationship with God. And then the second part of this text, there are three reminders for Christians, in light of this new creation. Three reminders for Christians in light of this new creation. First of all, John tells us to remember that God is sovereign and that he will not fail to bring the new creation about. Read in verse 5 to the first part of verse 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So God starts out and says to John, behold, I am making all things new. God says, this new creation, that's my work that I have in store for you. And then God reminds John that he is sovereign and he cannot fail to bring about this new creation. The language of verse 5 to 6 points to the sovereignty of God. The second part of verse B, he says, these words are trustworthy and true. So even though this is a promise that God has made to us, and it's yet future. God says it's trustworthy and true. We can trust that what God has promises, promised us, that he will bring this about. He promised us a new creation, and he is in control of all things. He's at work in history to bring this about. 
And then the first part of 6a, he says, it is done. He said to me, it is done. Even though this is yet future, because God is sovereign over all things, he says, it is done. It's, it's good as though it had already happened, because that is God's purpose. He is at work in history to bring about this new creation. And then the last part of verse 6, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God, when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he's pointing to the fact that he is in control of everything. Regardless of what things may seem, regardless of what things might seem in your life, regardless of what you may be going through, God says he's the Alpha and he is the Omega. He's in control of everything. And because God is in control of everything, he will bring about this new creation as certainly as he brought the first creation about. So as we suffer, as at times we are tempted to compromise, we are called to remember this, that God is sovereign over all things. That colleague at work that might be hard for you to deal with. God is sovereign over that. That uncertainty that you might be feeling in your life right now. God is sovereign over all that. The financial struggle you may be going through. Or the loss of a job or a loved one. God is sovereign over all these things. But then we have a second reminder in light of this new creation. We are to remember that God offers this eternal inheritance freely. Look at the last part of verse 6. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, God says that men cannot do anything to earn this salvation. Okay, the thirst there, the, the idea is um, the salvation. It's a symbolic description of salvation when he talks about um, the spring of the water of life without payment. And God says it's something that he gives freely. The term water of life points to Jesus. In John 7, 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If we read earlier in Revelation, chapter 7, verse 17, there John says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. So this spring of living water is referring to salvation. And God reminds us that he gives that to men without payment. In other words, we cannot do anything to earn our salvation. It's something that God gives freely and that man has to receive, uh, to receive as a gift. Jesus opened the way to that water, to that spring of living water by his sinless life and vicarious death, by his resurrection from the dead, he has opened the way to this eternal inheritance to anyone who places his trust in him.
We need to remember that, and we need to be faithful in proclaiming these truths to people. And then third thing we ought to remember in light of this new creation is that man has to persevere to the end to have an inheritance in the new creation. Read verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The language of conquering, he says the one who conquers, the language of conquering in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament speaks of persevering, speaks of never, never, absolutely never, committing apostasy. Conquering talks about persevering in our confession of Christ as our Lord and Savior. Regardless of the cost, regardless of the circumstances, we hang on to Christ. To conquer speaks of perseverance. And if we read the book of Revelation, time and time again, the emphasis is on persevering. Now, we are called to remember this truth, that man has to persevere to the end to have an inheritance in the new creation. Now, perhaps when you hear this, and we consider what the Bible teaches concerning eternal security, perhaps we may feel there's a bit of a clash here. And let me just say this outright. I absolutely believe that the Bible teaches that a true believer cannot lose his salvation. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So I certainly believe that the Bible teaches that a true believer cannot lose his salvation. But I think at times we have overstated the doctrine. We have overstated the doctrine to mean that if you make a profession of faith, you cannot lose your salvation. And we need to be very careful in distinguishing between two things. There's faith and there's a profession of faith. They are not the same things. Okay? Some people make a profession of faith without truly having faith in Christ. Okay? And when we think of this truth, that man has to persevere to the end to have an eternal, to have an inheritance in the new creation, we need to remember a few things. First of all, when we read the scripture, the New Testament, it's clear that a true believer cannot lose his salvation. But what is also clear in reading the book of Revelation, in reading the epistles, in reading the gospels, is that man has to persevere to the end. And these two truths seem to clash, seem to not fit together. And I, what I suggest that we need to do as Christians is to say that we have two truths here that seem to not fit together in a coherent way. Okay? And as Christians, we should avoid trying to make them fit in a coherent way. It's almost impossible. Okay? What we need to do as people who are committed to the Scriptures is to say the Bible teaches that a true believer cannot lose his salvation. 
We believe that. We are going to proclaim that. The Bible also teaches that man has to persevere to the end in order to have an inheritance in the new creation. We believe that and we will uphold that. We will not try to see how these two things can fit together. We will simply say the Bible teaches this. We will believe it. The Bible teaches about the importance of perseverance, the necessity of perseverance. We will believe that. There are several truths in the scripture like this. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. How can these two things fit together in a coherent way? We can't always explain these things. What we need to do is say the Bible teaches about the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of things. We will uphold both truths. We will not magnify one truth at the expense of the other. We will uphold both truths. And this is how we need to approach this truth that man has to persevere to the end to have an inheritance in the new creation. We need to affirm both truths. On the one hand, salvation is free. On the other hand, man has a responsibility to persevere to the end. So, the person who makes a profession of faith but then shows no interest in living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, what that person shows is that, is that he has never known the Lord in the first place. But our text here goes a step further. The person who claims to be a follower of Christ and fails to persevere in the midst of persecution and hardships probably shows that he has never known the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When you read verse 8, okay, there's a list there of heinous sins. Okay? I'll, I'll read from the end to the beginning. Okay? He talks about liars, idolaters, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, the detestable. But then he says the faithless. And then what tops the list? The cowardly. Okay? It seems that the coward does not belong to that list. Right? When we think of that word, the coward, and we think of everything else that has been mentioned, it seems that, you know, it doesn't quite fit there. And we ask of all the heinous sins there are, why does being coward top the list? And I think the answer is probably because this is an indictment against people who claim to be Christians, but then fail to follow Christ regardless of the cost. So when persecutions and hardships arise, they show cowardice. They show that they don't have what it takes to follow Christ. So instead of saying, I'm going to follow Christ regardless of what that might mean for me, regardless of what I might suffer to follow Christ, when they feel, when they encounter persecutions, they compromise. They refuse to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. They are coward, and the scripture said people like this have no part in the new creation. People who, when hardships and persecution arise, show faithlessness. 
Difficulties, difficult circumstances show the reality of our faith. So we need to remember this. We have a responsibility to persevere to the end, to have an inheritance in the new creation. So, in conclusion, let me just remind you that God is sovereign. And ultimately, this is where our hope lies, in the sovereignty of God. His sovereignty means that He is fully able to do what He says He will do. He has promised us that He will keep us, that He will guard us. And our hope is in His sovereignty. He's fully able to grant us an inheritance in the new creation that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept in heaven for us. He's able to make a new creation where persecution will be totally absent and where it will be impossible for sin to rear its ugly head ever again. So as you struggle with sin in your life, in your struggle with sin, remember that Christ is at work in you. God is sovereignly at work in you. And one day, you will be free from sin. And our goal as Christians, as we live our life, is this is the goal, that I will be free from sin by the grace of God. So we live our lives in such a way that with every single day that we live, we get to be closer and closer and closer to that goal. Let's take our struggle with sin seriously. Let's not give up. God is sovereign. And He wants us to be more like Christ. And He gives us the power and the capacity to be more and more like Christ. So let us remember these things through whatever circumstance life throws at us. Let us persevere to the end with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us pray.